0: Optimal health for high performers. This
1: is the Health Upgrade podcast with Dr. Navaz Habib. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Health Upgrade podcast. This is Dr. Habib, and I am here once again with my collaborator and co-host to season two, JP Erico. So excited to chat with you today because we have a really awesome topic, uh, one that I know is really, really at the forefront of your mind and a very, very important piece to the entire puzzle of overall health and the ability to function at a high level. And so I'm excited to get into this, but before we do, just give us a few words, let us know how you're doing.
0: I'm doing really well. And I have to say, I'm as excited as you indicated about this episode. I feel as if Some of the prior episodes, really most of the prior episodes have been a precursor to this episode. You know, maybe we didn't mention that before, but it's certainly the one that I feel sets the stage for everything that we're going to talk about going forward. It's such an exciting field, especially today with all the recent developments that have gone on and better understanding of how the brain works and how the immune system impacts the brain. It's going to be extremely exciting.
1: I love it. And I don't want to hold it up too much more, but I do want to say that since hearing your understanding and your perspective on this particular topic, it's become a really important piece in mind and, and just really shifted my thought process on the different types of cells and how they in- infiltrate and how they support the function of other cells and, and how we work in homeostasis and in synergy with one another, which is really important. So today's topic is on development of the brain and how we develop and the cells that are required to actually allow for cellular development, construction, repair, and rebuilding to occur when damage does occur. So really excited about this.
0: No, absolutely. And 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 for me, this entire area of study began about a little less than a decade ago when we were approached by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency uh, in the United States. DARPA is the group that developed night vision and hypersonic travel and, and a whole bunch of really crazy technology at the time. I mean, really Star Trek kind of stuff. And DARPA had a program in which they were looking at a variety of different ways of artificially modulating the autonomic nervous system and the central nervous system because they were looking to see if there were ways to make human brains work better. And when I say that, I, I mean learning faster, recalling information more quickly and efficiently, remembering information, really tedious and and complex information for long periods of time. And they wanted to see whether or not new technologies that were associated with modulating the nervous system could in some way affect those systems in a positive way. And so, They dedicated, I think, close to $100 million to studying a variety of different technologies. And the one technology that sort of rose above the rest and came out at the forefront of of the research as being effective in doing that was vagus nerve stimulation. And obviously, that was something that was really exciting to me being in the field and being interested in it. It was not specific to a given technology, it wasn't a specific way of doing it, but what they found was that vagus nerve stimulation had the ability to literally make you smarter. And that was just fascinating to me. And it, it drove my, my interest in figuring out why that would be the case, how it would be that stimulating a peripheral nerve, you know, yes, it's a cranial nerve, but it's still a peripheral nerve. It's not in the inside the brain, how that could do it. And I think we've come to a realization, at least preliminarily, as to how that works. And I'm really excited to share that with everybody today.
1: That's exciting. And just to clarify, so through the DARPA grant that came through and and the research that had been done, you mentioned that vagus nerve stimulation was the only one that kind of the cream of the crop. It rose to the top. But how many other technologies were actually tested during that time? And how many did it kind of beat out?
0: Well, they didn't share all that with us, but I will say my understanding is it was about 20 different types of neural stimulation. It included things like transcranial stimulation of, you know, just right across the temples, (laughs) stimulation of other cranial nerves, the trigeminal nerve, et cetera. Peripheral stimulation, literally just stimulation of, of skin and your body. And so they did a lot of different types of stimulation. And again, vagus nerve stimulation rose to the top as the cream of the crop. And we're really excited about the opportunities that that means for really everybody.
1: Yeah. No question about it. And and so this is, a great precursor into understanding kind of the thought process. And I think that's a great segue for us to lead into the, the full thought process here in regards to how vagus nerve stimulation kind of does that and what they were looking for through the DARPA stuff overall. So give us a little rundown of kind of what they were testing for and what vagus nerve stimulation truly allowed for to occur. Well the
0: people within the research group that were were promoting the idea that vagus nerve stimulation could do this their thesis was really very rudimentary it was that they knew that vagus nerve stimulation when you stimulate the vagus nerve that the signal goes up into the brain stem through the nucleus tractus solitarius and one of the first areas of the brain that gets stimulated as a result of that is the locus ceruleus there's a release of norepinephrine And norepinephrine is associated with heightened alertness and awareness, and so they felt that that was likely the way in which it was going to be functional in making people just concentrate better, be more alert, more focused, and as a result, be able to learn more quickly, more efficiently, and ultimately form better memories. What I think we've discovered along the way is that that's certainly part of the story, but it's probably only just the tip of the iceberg. And that what's really going on is more along the lines of the modulation of the immune system. And the first question that should pop into your mind when I say that is, well, how is modulating the immune system affecting your ability to learn? And it turns out that that's where that, that really exciting story begins. It's literally the first step on a thousand mile journey that we've taken. And it, is, it brought us to a, a wonderful a wonderful place. So I'm looking forward to digging into the science and really explaining how the immune system affects literally our ability to learn.
1: I love that. And I don't want to hold it up at all. Let's let's dig into understanding the development of the brain, because if we know the pathway by which we're trying to figure this out and understand how it does modulate, how the immune system is so heavily involved in the process of development of the brain, we have to understand kind of how that occurs. And so let's dig in right there.
0: Sure. So, literally, on about day seven of gestation, I mean, literally seven days after conception, we've barely gotten you know a clump of, of cells together that you know just in a few hundred of them. One of the early, early progenitor cells of it within the immune system migrates into the small little cluster of progenitor neurons, a ner- nerve cell progenitors, which is going to be the brain, and it begins to control and direct this symphony that ultimately results in the human brain being developed. And so what you see is in utero, I mean, literally again, day, day nine, day 10, day 14 of gestation, the microglial cells, early microglial cells have migrated into the brain. They've begun to proliferate themselves. So you're getting more and more of them just as, as you're having massive neurogenesis, lots and lots of neurons are being created and they're being connected to one another that's all being directed by microglial cells. They're involved in connectivity. They're involved in literally pruning away and causing some of the nerve cells that are are being just sort of created willy-nilly just to die out. And they, they will swallow them up, eat them. And they do that in order to make certain that only the ones that are needed and are in the appropriate places are being allowed to survive. They also help to design where the vasculature is going to go. Literally, I mean, your brain cells need oxygen, they need blood flow. Microglial cells are laying down the tracks as to where that vasculature is going to grow. It also lays down the white matter tracks that allow connectivity between distal parts of the brain. So. The microglial cells are, I mean, there's there's articles that talk about them being the architects of the brain, but I think that's limiting. I think it's not just the architects, they're the construction crew. They're the the regulators that come in and make certain that everything's being done right. They're the maintenance crew that keeps it functioning even after it's been built. And and that is something that lasts not just through gestation, not just through childhood neurodevelopment, but all the way through adulthood and even into aging. And a lot of the things that we think of as being either benefits of that neurodevelopmental process or consequences of it going awry are really the result of how the microglial cells are functioning. And one of the things that we're going to talk about today is when those microglial cells function properly, what is going on, what's happening at each stage, but also what happens when something interferes with those microglial cells functioning the way they really optimally should be and what, what the consequences of that are.
1: It sounds very much like this in initial process is focused. And I imagine this, is, this continues on as we go, but just as, as we've mentioned so far in this initial stage, the focus is on efficiencies and ensuring that we don't go off and create a pathway or create cells in areas that won't be efficient and won't function optimally to allow for human functioning to be limited, right? And we're all about creating these efficiencies within the body. And so the entire process that seems to be controlled here by these microglial cells is about ensuring that we're creating only what needs to be created and in as an an effective and efficient way as possible.
0: Absolutely. And ultimately, what we want in the beginning during this you know, in utero development, there's not a lot of sensory input. There's some, but not a lot of sensory input that's going into the brain during this development. It's all about neurogenesis. It's about making connections. It's about ensuring that new synapses are being made and growing, and that continues on all the way through gestation and into the early stages of, of development. In fact, one of the things that's been discovered over the last several years is the fact that that connectivity the concentration, the density of connections, and by connections, I mean synapses. So it's where one one neuron is talking to another, sending a signal from one to the other and creating that chain of signals that ultimately results in, in, let's call it a thought. What happens is there's an incredible need to create more and more and more and more connections to the point where per cubic millimeter in the brain, by the time you're about two years old, there's over 650 million connections per cubic millimeter. I mean, ultimately in an adult brain there's over a hundred trillion connections. But even down to the cubic millimeter, we're talking about 670 million. But that's sort of the peak. The microglial cells begin in various different parts of the body or parts of the brain, within the very early stages of development after birth, begin to control, how those connections either survive or get pruned away. One of the most important things that the microglial cells do is actually pruning away these connections. Think of it as a sculptor who has a large block of of marble and he's thinking about what he's going to make, what he's going to sculpt from that marble. He has to have that entire block. Ultimately, he doesn't want to have that entire block there. He wants to chisel some of it away. That's what the microglial cells, they're literally sculpting using activity dependent uh, signaling. And we can talk a little bit about that as well as we go. But the microglial cells are looking at surveilling, touching every one of these synapses and looking to see whether or not, hey, is there enough activity here to warrant this one surviving? If there's one that's got a lot of activity, well, then what it will do is it will reinforce that activity. And then by modulating the activity required to activate that synapse, it can prevent the synapse from sort of overheating, what's called excitotoxicity. So it's doing all of these different functions to make certain that the brain is being pruned down to the most efficient state so that by the time you get to be 10, 12, 15 years old and you're still developing... By, and I've got kids that are about that age, and trust me, they're still developing. But even by that stage, we have reduced by 40 to 50% the number of connections that now exist in that brain. So it's dropped from 600, over 650 million per cubic millimeter down to only about 340, 320 million connections per cubic millimeter. And, but those, those have been reinforced. Those are the ones you need in order to think properly. And so that process, interesting, it actually mimics in some ways that early microglial activity where you're pruning actually mimics in some way, some forms of inflammation. It actually uses some of the the cytokines like TNF-alpha and IL-1 and IL-6 to actually to eat those connections that need to be eaten and, and swallowed up and destroyed but it's very different. It's not true inflammation. It's not inflammation like what you see when you have a traumatic brain injury, or there's you know bacterial infection, or you have systemic inf- inflammation that's causing your brain to become inflamed. All those things that happen later in life are different, but there are some ways in which there's parallels. And that turns out to be really important when you look towards the other end of life, in the elderly, and you see degenerative diseases where those microglial cells are starting to take on some of their more early roles and starting to prune away connections that were really important. And we'll get we'll get into the details of how that works.
1: Yeah, I like that. And just to clarify the understanding here is that in the early stages, these microglial cells are not functioning the way that we see them kind of day-to-day normal life microglial cells. There's some differences there. Do you want to mention what those are?
0: Yeah. As I said just now, there's levels to which they're expressing inflammatory cytokines, but they're doing that because part of their job at that point is not to eat a bacteria or destroy a virus or an infected cell. It's through activity dependent, what's called phagocytosis. They will engulf either the presynaptic or postsynaptic terminal of that synapse that's not functioning properly or not getting any activity. And it's just sort of a wasted connection. And they'll go in and they'll, they'll destroy it. They'll, they'll prune it away. You know, my high school motto was the Latin phrase success of which means that which is cut down grows back stronger. And so it's really the same exact thing in the brain. That's what the mi- microglial cells are doing. They're cutting things away that aren't needed to be there or don't need to be there. And in doing so, they reinforce the connections that do need to be there. One perfect example that's been, I think, pretty well identified at this point is very, very early on in life, within the first few weeks after birth, what happens is your the, the connections in your optic nerve and in your uh, visual cortex, and even in your retina, the connections are bilateral. So you're seeing something with your right eye and your right retina, but it's actually sending signals down both pathways. But you don't want that. You want to have stereoscopic vision. You want to prune away the connections that shouldn't be there and only allow the ones that should. So we literally, our immune system, these are microglial cells, our immune cells, they're not nerve cells. They're not even from the same path of progenitor path of nerve cells. And yet they're controlling whether or not your visual cortex can see properly. And one of the things that they've done you know, in, in animal studies is they've taken animals at very early stages of life and they've covered their, their eyes and basically made it so they, they're not getting any input. And what happens is in that situation, you have both the connections that you want to keep as well as the ones that you shouldn't keep, both of them are not getting any activity. And as a result of that, the microglial cells will begin to prune away both the ones that should be there and the ones that shouldn't be there. And as a result, you end up with, you know, in most cases it's temporary, but even if it's done long enough, it can be permanent, impairs their vision. So It's just an exciting way in which now understand how the brain functions. It's not that connections are created when they're the right connection and bad connections just don't get created. It's that all connections get created and we prune away the ones that we don't need.
1: So it sounds very much to me like the initial stages here, the focus is on internal because we're not concerned about external stressors or external challenges like bacteria and viruses, like you mentioned, we're focused on developing a good, strong, functioning brain and and allowing for connections to occur, the connections that we know to be effective in, in creating clear, efficient, effective thought and building out motor and sensory and, and all of the connections all the way down through the entirety of the body and the peripheral nerves as well as in the central nervous system the enteric nervous system etc so all of that is initially being pruned and organized early on and then as the baby develops and we get into stages following birth this is where the immune system kind of shifts its focus not only to what's happening developmentally it just decreases that the function that it's focused on with the development over many years, but now the focus becomes on protecting what's been built from external challenges as well. And so this is where the bacteria viruses, the adaptive immune system, the innate immune system kind of work together. And I, I love your, your third branch of the immune system, if you want to kind of dig into what that is.
0: Sure. And, and for those who haven't, haven't listened to the earlier podcast where we went into this in more detail, I'll just be brief about it. You know, the the immune system that we have is divided sort of into traditionally into two branches. You have the innate immune system, which comprises things like natural killer cells and macrophages and other cells that really function almost like in a pre-programmed fashion. They see something that indicates damage, what's called damps, damage associated molecular patterns or pathogens like bacteria or viruses or parasites. Those are called PAMPs or pathogen-associated molecular patterns, they respond sort of automatically. They're very robust. They come in and they clear the system. They do some damage in the process. And that's unfortunate, but the goal is that we wanna kill the threat faster than we're damaging ourselves. That's not something we wanna continue to do over and over and over again for the same problem. And so we've evolved an adaptive immune system. And the adaptive immune system sort of partners with the innate immune system that when the innate immune system is done doing what it does, it will show the adaptive immune system, the remains, if you will, of the of the problems, whether they be viruses or bacteria or otherwise. They show them the pieces of it, the pieces that are sort of the characteristic pieces of that. And then you develop T cells, memory T cells, B cells, memory B cells. And these are the cells that function very specifically they sort of lie in wait and they rapidly proliferate when you come in contact for a second time or a third time with that virus or that bacteria and they attack very very strongly you don't get sick because they're so fast acting that you don't need to get you know ill in response and they do their job but in both cases whether you're talking about the innate immune system or the adaptive immune system in both cases you actually have to come in contact with that, that threat, that whether it's uh, you know an injury or chemical intrusion, a toxin, bacteria, virus, et cetera. What we're now understanding is that the brain and the central nervous system is sort of the third arm of the immune system. It is the proactive immune system. We've already established from, I think, just on the conversation today, how much the brain is actually developed and built by the immune system, by immune cells. And part of the function of the brain, in fact, a really important part of the, of the function of the brain is to protect us, make certain that we have food, make certain that we don't injure ourselves, make certain that we stay away from dangerous things. And and those last two are, are really important. I mean, making certain that we don't get into a situation where we need to heal, not get into a situation where you have to fight a bacterial infection. Now, in really higher organisms like human beings and, and higher mammals that have, you know, have an emotional state about them, who have the ability to, you know, maybe not the same way humans do, but to, to a certain extent, you know, higher mammals have the ability to sort of predict what's going to happen. I mean, dogs don't run off cliffs. They know that if you run off a cliff, you're going to fall. So they avoid that. And, and that's a cognitive thing. It's a decision that they make. And they do that because they're protecting themselves. They don't, you know, they don't run into you know fighting lions unless they absolutely have to, because they know that there's a risk of damage. They also know not to eat certain things. They know not to put themselves in situations where they can be, get sick. And so that is part of the immune system that is our central nervous system. So again, we have an innate immune system that's sort of the most basic, an adaptive immune system that works, again, still have to get in contact with it. There's no intelligence behind it. It's the results of sort of random connections, but but it's it's programmed. And then you have this, this neocortical, if you will, or it, frankly, it's any portion of the central nervous system that changes our behavior in response to what we see outside to prevent us from getting injured or getting sick or getting hurt. So what's happening here is sort of a shift in our understanding of how the central nervous system and the immune system work together and how maybe the central nervous system is really an offshoot or part of the immune system. So as we continue this conversation, if you keep that framework in mind, then you'll understand how when the immune system starts to act in its more primitive state to, to pre- prevent us from getting bacterial infections or viral infections, and there's systemic inflammation, some of the more, let's call them evolved, uh, the more important in the long term, homeostatic influences of those of those microglial cells can get disrupted. Mm. And so, you know, as you were describing before, during gestation and that early childhood, and, and frankly, all the way through life. Microglial cells' primary job is to maintain homeostasis, proper neurodevelopment, continue uh, the ability to learn and to to maintain the brain in the most efficient state and functioning as possible. But that's not the only thing that those microglial cells can do. They do have the ability to shift into that fighting mode, that mode where they say, okay, now I've got to give up just surveilling and maintaining you know the system. I've got to go into a fighting mode. You know, it's sort of like the opposite of that old Latin or the old Roman soldier who, you know, beat his sword into a plowshare. This is the opposite. We're taking the function of the microglial cells that's that's neurotrophic, it's neurodevelopmentally positive. It's doing and they're giving that up to move back into that inflammatory state, going to fight, giving up the home front and going into battle. We wanna minimize, in order to maximize neurodevelopment, in order to maximize the ability of those microglial cells to do their job most effectively so that we can be most efficient thinkers and learners, et cetera, is to not have inflammation occur. Yeah. And when it does occur, there are consequences. Now, for most, most of the time, it's, it's not too problematic and it can be recovered, but sometimes it is bad. And sometimes it's bad enough that it can literally alter the life of the individual who's experienced it.
1: Love what you've got there. And a couple of visualizations and observations that I want to kind of dig into. Number one, the visualization that comes to me as you're mentioning this is, uh, if you remember from the Karate Kid, the bonsai tree and the gentle pruning of the bonsai tree and ensuring that it stays in its beautiful form and the little pruning of branches that, like to stick out a little bit and and just keeping an eye on it as it grows but at the same time protecting the bonsai tree from the elements from the challenging environment that it's being placed in right allowing it to have the right sunlight allowing it to have the right water intake but not over watering not over sunning not over allowing bacteria or bugs or whatever to get in and create a challenge there so that bonsai tree because it's internally like the the tree itself is growing so the immune system, which in in this particular scenario would be the person, is pruning and ensuring the beauty of that tree, but at the same time, protecting from external threats and external challenges that are going to go on. So that's just a quick visualization that I have. I'm very much an analogy and visual person. So that's uh, one that stuck out. And you mentioned now, in those first few years of life, limiting inflammation, because if we're constantly providing more inflammation and more challenge for these microglial cells to shift into a pro inflammatory environment where they're trying to protect from that external stuff, then they're not being given the opportunity to support the internal growth and the growth of that bonsai tree or growth of the brain in those strong developmental ways. And so we start to connect in different challenging ways. And the synapses are not pruned as well as they should be. And I imagine this is one of those instances where we can talk about the development of attention deficit, attention deficit hyperactivity, autism, and just these connections that are not being pruned or not being supported because the focus is on some external threat now.
0: Yeah. And that's exactly the next step in this understanding is what happens when the microglial cells aren't allowed to function in the way that they're. Really programmed to do, and which is to prune very efficiently in an activity dependent way the brain and make certain that the connections are most efficient and most functional. And that happens when there's systemic inflammation, and it can begin even during gestation. There's been recent studies, which I think were fantastic ideas, to go and look at hospitalizations of women during pregnancy for serious systemic inflammatory problems. So when a woman who's pregnant has a serious increase in cytokines, circulating cytokine levels, there's a consequence to the growing fetus. And what happens is that that growing baby inside her in the brain, in the neurodevelopment phase where those microglial cells are supposed to be pruning away and building and making certain that the connections are most efficient. If they're distracted for a significant period of time, then they've sort of failed to do their job of pruning and so a lot of connections will remain think of it as that sculptor we talked about that big block of marble and you know the the sculptor is sculpting away at this beautiful image of a you know a maiden you know sniffing flowers but you know on one side one portion of her no chiseling took place i mean so there's just a big giant piece of rock you know that's that's still there and unfortunately those nerve pathways are still active I mean, they're there. They may not be active in the in the way that is most efficient or designed to be, but they're still active. They're still doing things, and as a result, they're distracting to the conscious thoughts. And it could be beyond that; can be physical, you know, control. And so, what you end up with is an over connectivity. So you have an over connectivity in the brain, and that that can happen as a result of maternal inflammation, but it can also happen. During the early stages of life, during that, during those, uh, you know, first formative years from age, you know, from birth until, you know, around age four or five, you see that hospitalization of children during that period of time for severe inflammatory conditions, you know, infections, et cetera, can, it doesn't always, and certainly don't want to terrify people, but it can and we're still trying to figure out if there's a genetic component to it. There does appear to be a sex component to it. Mm. It does appear that boys are about four times more likely during this period, as a result of having these inflammatory events, either maternal or in early childhood, about four times more likely to have this overconnectivity problem. And that overconnectivity problem results in. What is what's referred to as autism, autism spectrum disorder. It's not the only causation, but it is a pretty important one as as far as we can tell right now. Now, I, I realize that there's lots of different ways for people during this period of time, you know, in that age one through five, to have systemic inflammatory responses. There's clearly injuries that can take place, there's diseases that can take place, anything that drives a strong. Inflammatory disorder uh, you know, response can lead to this again, only in some people, and we don't yet know how to figure out which people it, you know will be most affected by this. But it would be a wonderful thing if we could because then those people could be protected against things in maybe a more robust way than we do, and everybody else can survive without worrying about it. But at the end of the day, what we want to do is minimize. The risk of this overconnectivity problem that results from microglial cells being distracted away from their normal neurotrophic function and being pushed into being in that fighting mode of pro-inflammatory because of either systemic or central nervous system inflammation that occurs. There's other dysfunctions, but that's a really big one that I think we're now beginning to understand and. Ways of, of suppressing that inflammation and suppressing that over response and pushing those, doing the opposite of pushing those microglial cells back into that neurotrophic state is really critical. And I think that if, if we can do that more effectively, then maybe the rates of autism will come down and we'll be, we'll be able to, to ultimately maybe even treat these patients more quickly.
1: I want to take a action item break, because I think this is where we can apply some of this information for those either practitioners or listeners that are pregnant, thinking of having kids, have young kids that are noticing uh, that they want to optimize the potential development of their child's growth. Some of the things that I think we can very clearly, and the evidence speaks to this very, very clearly, is eliminating or decreasing the risk of these inflammatory concerns, not by hyperhygienic practices, but rather through nutrition. I think nutrition is one of those key practices that is coming into light more recently, but the primary driver of a lot of this production of the precursors towards autism and towards the attention deficit disorders as well comes down to sugar intake and comes down to poor nutrient intake overall and the microbiome piece there as well. Do you have anything to kind of mention there?
0: Yeah, I do. And this is especially true for children. There's a different problem for them uh, during during pregnancy. I don't think that sugar necessarily is as detrimental to an adult woman who's who's pregnant, who's having a child. But what I do think is important is stress. Mm -hmm. Um, So we'll we'll get back to the sugar thing in one second because I just want to do this in sort of timing order of how it goes. But You know, there's 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 a lot of truth to sort of old wives tale or or mothers, you know, grandmother's wisdom about things. And we've talked about this in the past that there's a lot of things that we've sort of learned culturally, but we don't have the scientific support for. And what I think research now is doing is showing that a lot of the things like chicken soup and other things that we we've talked about in the past. There is a scientific rationale for why those things, and not, not just a scientific rationale, but scientific proof that the, what's in chicken soup is good for you, that sort of thing. But what, one of the things that, that, you know, my father was an obstetrician gynecologist and, you know, back in the day, you know, it was really important that, you know, they said pregnant women should get off their feet relax, you know, sit at home, eat bonbons, that sort of thing. Um, You know, I'm not suggesting that that's, you know, that's necessary, but it really is beneficial to reduce the stress because human beings have the ability, uh, as we've talked about in that proactive immune system to not only perceive physical threats, but they also have the ability to experience emotional stress and perceive Sort of abstract threats. And I think that during pregnancy, it's especially important to minimize the stresses and the emotional strain that a pregnant mother is under, because that leads to central nervous system stress in the mother, which leads to physical stress. And the physical stress leads to the baby experiencing a heightened level of cytokine expression. And not in a good way, but in a bad way. And it can be damaging. And you know, listen, I, I realize we all live in modern society and it's difficult. But some simple tips. Try to get a good night's sleep. Try to sleep, you know, try to sleep a good eight, eight, you know, hours if you're pregnant, maybe more, maybe nine hours if you need it. Don't sit up at night watching TV. You know, get that rest you need. Do eat well. I'm not suggesting you have to stay away from sugar because they used to say eat bonbons. So you know, uh, you know, don't don't necessarily avoid sugar or, or try to maintain a starvation diet so you don't gain weight. Accept the fact that being pregnant means you got to gain some weight. Um, you can lose it later. It's an effort, but it's good for the baby. And try to minimize the stress. I'm not suggesting that you can avoid it because if you're working, you got to deal with the work stress, but take deep breaths, take deep breaths, take step back and recognize that this is just a, a short period of time in your life where you might have to put the career not on hold, but just recognize that 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 extra effort that you've put in in the past, just for these nine months, you're just going to, you're going to not coast, but you're going to take the time that you need to develop a good baby. Now, talking about children, by all means, sugar is a drug. I mean, especially processed sugar, it's a drug. And you're feeding your kids a drug when you feed them sugar. I'm not suggesting you can't, Avoid it and, uh, you know, that, that somehow you, you're you going to be the one kid, you know, the one kid on the block who doesn't get lollipops. You know, obviously that's a bad thing, but you want to moderate it because it does have an effect on the immune system and and make certain your children stay in shape. That's, you know, get them up, moving around. You know, I know it's really tough because these video games are designed to be, to hook the kids on the dopamine uh, that they get from from playing these games, but you know, teach them teach them that the dopamine that they get uh, when they when they shoot a basket or when they kick a goal in a game or things like that that that's that that's even more valuable, and, and that a social interaction is really important. Get them out playing with friends in person and not on on phones. And I realize I, I sound like I'm a, like a grandmother at this point, but there's wisdom there, and and the wisdom is being supported now by what science is telling us. So. You know, sort of bringing this back to the hard sciences. What we want to do in the mom, and in the in the fetus, and in the in the child after you know after it's born is minimize the the drive to push those microglial cells into a pro-inflammatory state. Minimize that. Keep them focused on neurodevelopment. Keep them focused on pruning the network, using activity-dependent reinforcement of the good connections, and allowing your child to grow to be the smartest child possible with the minimum intellectual or or emotional challenges as a result of of that kind of damage.
1: Fun little side note, yesterday or, This past weekend was Canada Day, Independence Day. and realize we're recording this well in advance of when you're probably listening to it. But we had time with family and there were multiple instances where the ice cream truck was pulling up around the corner. And and it's really funny, the difference between a parent's reaction and a kid's reaction and just seeing what happens there and that sugar, that desire, that motivation for them to want to have that when they're younger is in a very positive way. But if we can moderate and, and as a parent, you hear it and you're like, oh, no, they're not going to sleep for a few hours, or they're not going to sleep tonight, or something like that is going on in your head. And that's that protective mechanism. And so this is where that moderation piece really comes into play. And so yeah, you don't want to be the only kid on the block that doesn't get the ice cream or the lollipop or whatever the the issue is there. But moderation really is the key here. And I, I as you've gone through it, Four times I'm on round two, and my kids are still in that very early developmental phase. So I, I see it in practice, and that's why I wanted to shift over to this action piece. I think is it's great now for us to shift over back into the the discussion that we were having, focusing on the pruning piece of the neural connections and how we then stem into neurodevelopment in those early childhood years, and then what can happen as time kind of goes on.
0: Yeah, and in fact, we've just talked about autism being a consequence or in many cases, consequence of under pruning the network. So the the, the network has too many connections. In fact, we've done you know autopsies on 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 people who have had autism. And what we find is that there's too many connections. So it's it's been shown physically also to be the case that there's a higher level of connectivity and altered connectivity in autism. However, during adolescence, there's a process that is sort of the inverse of this, where in this case, heightened inflammation can actually lead in the other direction to indiscriminate and over pruning of the network. So now you have a loss of connections that probably should be there. And what you see in that case is altered cognitive ability, but also altered emotional stability. And even more frightening is it can get to the point where the brain starts to hallucinate. And so those are all con- the symptoms of schizophrenia. And so schizophrenia is sort of the opposite of autism structurally in that autism was, was under pruning the network. There was too much, you know, if you think about the sculpture analogy again, that, that autism was, you know, only half the figure has been sculpted away. The other figure is still a, bl- a block of rock. This is a situation where, we've chiseled away too much. And now the image is distorted and doesn't look right because it's missing limbs, it's missing features, it's missing, you know, really important aspects of the structure. And as a result, the brain starts to fill in, in creative ways that are not reality. And so you start to have hallucinations, brain isn't functioning properly, cognitively, it's not functioning appropriately emotionally, and those are all the hallmarks of schizophrenia. And in fact, again, they've done you know autopsies on people who had schizophrenia, and they've shown that now you've got overprinting; the connectivity isn't there that should be there. And so, again, it's a function of those microglial cells at that stage of life being pushed into a state of heightened inflammation, where that inflammation is being expressed by by pruning away areas of the network that, that should be left alone.
1: Very interesting to understand that and to hear it from that perspective where it's too many connections in, on one side and too few connections. And how our brains and how our microglial cells, A, are affected to create that from a root cause perspective, but also then to understand that the repair mechanisms are present but may not be functioning quite well Due to certain circumstances? Is there certain kind of pieces to the puzzle on the schizophrenia side where the over pruning has occurred? Is there a way to help with the rebuild process? Is there a way to shift that?
0: It's generally a long-term process because as we know, there are areas of the brain that have chronic uh, neurogenesis. So there's new cells being chronically brought into the system, but that sort of is toned down through neurodevelopment in other areas of the brain. And so it can be a very long-term process to sort of reconnect those areas of the brain and sometimes that's not possible, but I want to be optimistic and say that yes, I think over time, the process of neurogenesis and calming down that inflammation and allowing the the connectivity to be restored, that you can sort of get back to a state of more efficient thoughts and more reality-based perceptions. An interesting analogy, and I I think we touched on it on one of the earlier podcasts where we were hinting at this, is that even back in the the mid-90s, so we're talking 25, 27 years ago, there were researchers in the artificial intelligence field that were using the early neural networks and machine learning to model how dysfunction in that connectivity could mimic what humans experience in autism and schizophrenia and there's just a fantastic article by ira cohen from 1994 in which he reported on the modeling of a neural network and machine learning algorithm that didn't properly prune if you will didn't properly wait and learn it left connections and left signals in place that should have been you know sort of eliminated And what he found was that that system had the same learning disabilities, if you will, and the same behaviors in a a rudimentary way that mimicked autism. And that if you went in the other direction, subsequent papers, and he's been continuing this work, they've been, you know, other researchers have been continuing this work for the last 20 some odd years, when you leave in, when you, when you over prune the network, when you when you're too harsh in your regulating of those connections and you reduce them, that the system actually begins to hallucinate. In fact, Google has a really interesting program that they've, they've developed where they're allowing the connections to be pruned away too harshly in the network and it produces literally vi- in visual, in the visual cortex uh, or visual processing neural networks, it produces hallucinations. It, you know, all of a sudden, you know you'll see random images popping up in what is supposed to be a you know a representation of what you're seeing and that isn't there and and they're they're not just random splotchy you know snow or whatever these are all of a sudden there's a an image of a dog's head somewhere in the middle of the screen that's not that's not in the in the, in the visual field that they're videoing so it's a function of how that neural network is now misprocessing. And, and that is an analogy and it's being used to analogize to schizophrenia.
1: Very interesting. It's it's really fascinating stuff. Goes to show how AI is kind of built as a model of, of what's going on in our brains.
0: And in many ways it is. We've talked about this in the past and this is a little, little tangent, but there are, there are specific neural network structures that are, happen to be ideal for natural language processing. And the engineers sort of developed it independently. And then when the neuroscientists went back and they looked at the structure of the neocortical columns associated with language processing, they found this specific structure that Mother Nature had evolved for doing that task. And when they looked over at what the natural language processing engineers and, and, and AI had developed, it was the same. And so it was just sort of, you know, serendipity that, that that Mother Nature and the engineers both came up with the same solution. But you know, form follows function. And they were looking for that function, and that was the form that did it best.
1: Let's take a step over into adulthood now and how immune system cells, the microglial cells in particular, are uh, functioning during adulthood and, and what the focus is during that time.
0: Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, there's different areas of the brain that cease to have neurogenesis Going on because you sort of want to lock that system in place. You don't want to damage it. You you want to make certain that once it's optimized, it just stays there. Sort of like your visuals, your, your visual cortex, in in to a certain measure is sort of locked in within just a few weeks of of, of birth. But there's other areas of your brain, like your hippocampus, where memories are formed, where you need to be able to create memories throughout life. So there is chronic neurogenesis that's going on in the brain, in the hippocampus. And so you have microglial cells there, their job is specifically to continue that process of enhancing connectivity, pruning away both cells and uh, connections that are inappropriate, activity, dep- you know, listing and seeing which connections are getting the right activity or getting a significant amount of activity, reinforcing them, allowing to decrease the thresholds for activation, preventing excitotoxicity. I mean, there's, there's literally dozens of different tasks that they're doing, but their job is basically to maintain that integrated network and, and make it function properly throughout your life and when it works properly and, and you're not distracted your ability to learn your ability to recall things your ability to uh, apply past knowledge prior knowledge is very efficient and and you're you're functioning properly what we find is that when you're sick one of the things that people experience when they've had you know significant inflammatory conditions etc they get what's referred to as brain fog which is sort of this this feeling like their brain is slogging through molasses to to function, that you forget things, you can't really learn, you're impaired. And that's a function of the fact that the microglial cells in your central nervous system are being pushed by that systemic inflammation into a state where they're not really doing their job as efficiently as they should be. And as a result, you have this cognitive impairment. One way in which that cognitive impairment can occur is from lack of sleep. So we all know that if you stay up for too long, your brain starts to get a little wonky and it's not working properly. And that's a function of the fact that staying up for too long causes your microglial cells to start to get into that inflamed state. One of the studies that DARPA did, so we're going back and looking back at what we talked about at the very beginning of of the talk, was that DARPA did work looking at how vagus nerve stimulation, which has the ability to push those microglial cells into that neurotrophic state, into that neurodevelopmentally positive state and push it and keep those microglial cells from staying in that inflamed state, pushing them out of that inflamed state. That what their study was, they took people who were, and these were volunteers, who stayed up for 36 hours, tried to learn new material at that point, tried to apply it. What they found was that vagus nerve stimulation enhanced the ability to learn, that the, these individuals were able to learn technically difficult material, challenging uh, you know, concepts, tedious physical things that they had to do, manipulate things with their hands, et cetera, that they learned how to do it more quickly and that they remembered it, recalled it for an extended period of time afterwards and were very efficiently capable of applying it as if they had learned it when they were highly alert and, and fresh and, and well rested. Um, so that demonstrated the ability of ways of pushing those microbial cells back into that neurotrophic state of enhancing cognitive capabilities. That that can occur both with being tired. It can occur. We all know from you know from alcohol and and toxins. It can happen from systemic inflammation. It can happen from autoimmune inflammation. It can happen from meta inflammation. So we were talking about in the last podcast. We talked about metabolic disease and how it can affect various different inflammatory pathways. Well, it can also affect cognitive capabilities. And so. You were talking about sugar before and sugar and how it affects the metabolism and and inflammation. And so all of these things are pushing microglial cells in the wrong direction, but modulating the autonomic nervous system allows us to push those microglial cells back into that neurotrophic state, allows you to form memories more efficiently because those microglial cells are doing all those dozens of tasks that they're supposed to be doing and not getting distracted by inflammation. And... You learn better. You learn faster. You keep your memories longer. You hold on to them. You can efficiently apply knowledge. It's really exciting because that we now know that things like meditation and deep breathing exercises and other things and, and running. And people talk about exercise being good for the brain. Well, it is. It is because it's lowering inflammation and it's allowing the brain to function more efficiently and more effectively. So All of these different things, whether it be vagus nerve stimulation artificially or through techniques that we've talked about in the past, help you to become more cognitively capable and maximizing what you're capable of doing as an adult.
1: Has there been any research that you've come across with regards to the effect of BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, on microglial activity, or is it more focused on neurogenesis and the production of more synaptic connections in neurons.
0: Well, BDNF is as a chemical that is released in the brain, and microglial cells are a big source of it. So, BDNF is something that microglial cells will release in order in their neurotrophic state, versus you know the cytokines like TNF alpha and IL one and IL six, etc., that they release when they're in the pro-inflammatory state. So, yes, BDNF. I mean, it, it's couldn't be a better named compound, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It's exactly what you want it to be doing. You want to build the brain. But yes, in that M2, I I hesitate to use that term, but in that M2 neurotrophic state, you have BDNF being produced in order to promote neurogenesis in the hippocampus, et cetera.
1: I love that. And the reason I bring that up is you mentioned exercise. And we know for a fact that exercise, movement, activity levels, oxygenation, hyperoxygenation, are very, very positive ways to promote BDNF production, brain drive neurotrophic factor production. So exercise, not just from activity and move your muscles type of mindset, but it also does develop brain function and, and reinforce a lot of the connections that are being built in the brain. Literally, exercise makes you smarter.
0: Absolutely. It does. Exercise, deep breathing, meditation, all of those things are great ways to activate the parasympathetic nervous system and activate the release of brain-derived neurotrophic factor and get those microglial cells doing their surveilling, touching all those connections and reinforcing the ones that need it, pruning away the ones that, that don't. You know, It's, it's, it's kind of interesting. It was an interesting fact for me when I first learned it was that about 90% of the new cells that are formed in the hippocampus are actually pruned away. Um, it's only about 10% of the new cells that actually get integrated into the network and really function uh, in, a, in a positive way. But that pruning that needs to happen, I mean, you're talking about 90% of those cells getting phagocytized and eaten up and um, sort of regenerated. That system can break down. And one of the things that happens as you age, I mean, sort of an unfortunate fact of aging is that you do over time get more and more insults, get hurled at you, both physically, emotionally, et cetera, stresses and, and bad memories, et cetera. And those things lead to heightened level of activation of your microglial cells. And it's just, a, it's just one of those bad facts, if you will, about aging. And as a result, those microglial cells become more sensitive to potential triggers of inflammation. They're sort of primed, if you will. Mm-hmm. They're, they're existing in this state of Of vigilance. They're not necessarily active, but they're more vigilant. They're more sensitive to being pushed in that direction. And as a result, there are certain proteins that our brains use and make lots of that over time can aggregate into little, you know, nuggets of of multiple proteins sitting together. We know some of these are are things like amyloid beta and alpha-synuclein. And those, those protein aggregates can be immunogenic, that those microglial cells that are going around touching things and and doing things will touch those proteins and they will sometimes be triggered to view them as damaging and as potential things that they need to fight. And when they do that and they're not doing it efficiently and not doing it in a controlled manner or not ignoring them, what can happen is that they can be destructive. And they can, much the same way we talked about in adolescence, they can over prune. You see over pruning again occur in those brains and you end up with significant brain matter loss. And it depends on where they're, where it's present. You get some you know, specific areas uh, in, in Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease that are different from one another, but there's some common features, dementia associated with both of them. It's a degenerative process that over time, can be fatal. But there's ways of keeping your mind active, keeping yourself positive, keeping yourself active that will minimize the level to which that microglial activation will cause that degeneration to accelerate. In fact, one thing which I found very exciting when I first heard it because I thought it really, really explained this very well was that they took patients who had Early stage to moderate stage Alzheimer's. And what they looked at was what is the innate level of inflammation that exists in these patients' bodies? Mm -hmm. And so they measured it. And let's say some patients had high levels of inflammation, some patients had low levels of inflammation. And then they looked not only at that, but over a period of six months, they looked to see whether or not in those patients, any of them had experienced something which was either a trauma or a serious infection or something during that six months that would have caused a transient spike in inf- inflammation that could have been systemic versus not. So you've got, you've got these patients who at the beginning are either, you know let's say moderate Alzheimer's patients. And we're looking to see the rate of cognitive decline, the rate at which they're degenerating. Okay. And the goal is to stop the degeneration. I mean, I don't know that to, the, to the extent that there's gonna be a, a short-term reversal of that, but we just wanna stop it yeah. and, and slow it down. And what we found was, we didn't, what, what these researchers found was that if patients had experienced a trauma, that the level of decline doubled versus not. But more importantly than that was if they had innately high levels of inflammation chronically, what they found was that that was four times more degeneration over a six month period. So, to the extent that you can minimize inflammation systemically, as well as in the central nervous system, the data would suggest that you can slow down the progression of these degenerative disorders like Alzheimer's. In fact, We've talked about vagus nerve stimulation being one way to reduce microglial activation. There are studies in which they've used implanted vagus nerve stimulators in patients with moderate Alzheimer's. And what they've demonstrated is that in many of those patients, there was a slowing of the loss of cognitive capabilities that one of the tests that they use is called the mini mental state exam. And something like 70% of those patients had either no loss over that period or actually an improvement. I know I said I didn't want to suggest that there was going to be a way to improve function, but at least the studies suggested that there was an improvement in the test scores. That could be coping mechanisms that they learned during that period. So they didn't actually gain any any function, but they gained the ability to perform better on the test. And that can lead to a better quality of life. Lots of work. This is still very early. It's not, you know, certainly not something that that we can Go out there and say, yes, this is a proven proven therapy or anything like that at all, but really exciting potential to look through the lens of all these diseases, whether they're neurodevelopmental, cognitive problems during during adulthood or in, in late in life, some degenerative disorders. Look at them through the lens of the immune system as a way of treating, not just understanding, but understanding and treating these disorders in a way that um, will help make people's quality of life better. Now, there's one last piece of this that I wanna throw out there that's really speculative. It's very early stage, but I wanna put the pieces together for you around what activating the parasympathetic nervous system, relying on the vagus nerve to reduce inflammation can do not just in adults where the DARPA study demonstrated that you could see an improvement in the ability to learn specific material and recall it because you're forming better memories and more efficiently learning. But what happens if you do that in the neurodevelopmentally uh, rigorous time of childhood? That's where I think there's the opportunity to literally make better people, make better human beings. I think there's an opportunity to use the techniques whether they be meditation, I'm trying to get a five-year-old to meditate. It's going to be difficult. But other things like you know social interaction and getting out and running around and exercising and eating properly and minimizing inflammation and maybe there are ways of using um, neurostimulation techniques to add on to that to reduce the risk of those microglial cells shifting out of the neurotrophic state into the pro-inflammatory state. We want to minimize that. And to the extent that we can minimize that, I think we literally don't just make them capable of learning one thing or temporarily. I think we literally make their brains better brains. We make them better, more functioning, more efficient, more efficient learners, more emotionally stable, more healthy, individuals. And and I think we know that. I think we know that feeding your children right and getting them exercise and getting them stimulation can make them smarter. There's work that was done by a Dr. Statz years ago, back in the 1960s and 70s, where it was believed at the time that IQ of children was sort of static, that the intelligence, the innate intelligence of a person was sort of baked in pretty early on, and there was nothing you could do to change it. And he disagreed with that. He said, no, that an enriched environment could actually not just provide a person with more knowledge, but actually make them better learners. That learning is a process that not only teaches you something, but it teaches your brain how to become a better learner. And he actually took children and showed that if by giving them an enriched environment over a six month period of time, he could make them smarter. He could literally change their IQ scores. And I think that's one way of providing that opportunity. I think we can do that also by modulating the immune system and showing that by eliminating or minimizing the amount, because every person encounters things that are gonna cause some inflammation. Every every human being, especially children, scraping their knees, getting out and riding bikes, and all that stuff, they're going to have things that are causing them some injuries and they're gonna encounter new bacteria and viruses and all that kind of, we think of little kids as little, little disease vectors. Um, but they're experiencing these things. And to the extent that we can minimize the consequences in neurodevelopment of those experiences, I think we can actually make our kids smarter. And you know, if I if I were to have a legacy in this field, I would love it to be that, you know, we're using the autonomic nervous system to modulate inflammation. And in the process, we're not just making people healthier, we're not just making them have better lives. We're literally making them smarter. We're making them more emotionally stable. And, you know, this may be a little bit of a social commentary, but I feel as if, you know, some of the things that are going on in society today are a function of the fact that maybe some of the damage that's already been done by too much screen time, not enough exercise, not enough social interaction, social interactions that are distorted and other things are having a toll on the emotional stability. And cognitive capability of our youth. And, you know, if we don't do something to restore the health and well-being of our youth, our futures don't look very good. I don't want to sound, I don't want to make that sound negative. I want to make that sound as like a, an opportunity. This yeah. is a, a call for us to take action to make our youth more capable, smarter, giving them all the tools to be healthy, productive, happy, and responsible and creative members of society.
1: Yeah, there's no question about it. And a couple of things I want to touch on really quickly. When you were speaking initially with regards to the older generation and seeing cognitive decline as a real uh, concern for a lot of these uh, these people, we all know and likely have related to us people that are in that state where that cognitive decline is occurring. And you've seen those as well. But just yesterday morning, while I was out for a bike ride, I had a 75 year old blow right past me. And I was just completely inspired and looked at him as an aspirational kind of goal for, for where I want to be years from now. And that it just means that the possibility is there and given the right opportunity early on in childhood, in, in youth and adolescence, to limit the inflammation levels and to limit the, the concerns that the inflammation can create we can actually build people that are doing stuff like that down the road. And obviously, they didn't have vagus nerve stimulators 75 years ago when that gentleman was, was a child. But the more likely scenario is he was living in an enriched environment where inflammation was not an issue, where emotional traumatic responses were modulated in a very positive way. And that allowed him to become healthier, happier, build up a strong... Uh, ability So that at 75, 80 years old, he's still cycling past me at 25, 30 kilometers an hour, just blowing past me as I'm huffing and puffing <laughs> going going down this hill. So just really cool to see that, that possibilities do exist and, and we might actually have a, a really cool piece of the puzzle here and allowing this to occur for more and more people.
0: I think, you know, there, there was a great series of ads, an ad campaign by Nike. I don't know if it was about 20 or 25 years ago, in which they had a series of, of elderly people who were exercising. I remember one of them was, I think, a 90-something-year-old guy who every morning ran something like 17 miles in San Francisco across the Golden Gate Bridge. And his, his sort of funny line was that people asked him whether, you know, when he did this in the winter, did it make his teeth chatter? It was so cold. He said, no, I leave him in my locker. <laughs> um, and then you know they've got another one with a a guy who's 95 years old and he's just ripped and jacked he's just huge he's a weightlifter and he says i'm not strong for my age i'm strong and there was an, another woman an older woman who was running and she said i may be wrinkled and gray but i am not old so i really feel that that's the that's the message that for the elderly is that it really is never too late to be active to be engaged to be socially involved and to be healthy but also for the youth and I don't want to I don't ever want to leave them because I know we we look at them as, as sort of youth is wasted on the young they're so healthy etc but there's they're going through so much there's so much development that literally sets the stage for the rest of their lives and there was a wonderful study that was done at Stanford University and I know you and I have talked about it it's a, it's got a funny name it's called the Stanford marshmallow test and what these researchers did was they went in And they went to a kindergarten class and they put a marshmallow on every student's desk. And they sat at the front of the desk and they said, okay, children, we're going to leave now. All the adults are going to leave the room. We're going to be gone for about 15 minutes, which for a kid is like, you know, two hours. And they said, the marshmallow we've left you, you can eat now. But if you wait 15 minutes when we come back, if you haven't eaten your marshmallow and you're allowed to eat it if you want to, but if you don't, we'll give you a second marshmallow. And so what they did was they followed the kids who who took the opportunity to get the second marshmallow and waited, and they found that those children did much better in life, both intellectually, emotionally, career-wise, financially, over, it was a longitudinal study that lasted for several decades. And what they found is that these children did so much better, and they attributed it to their willingness to defer gratification. And I'm not denying the fact that there's some level to which that's true. In fact, I think it's probably very true but I do question what the root cause is. Why were some of those children able to see the future, to understand the concept that was being thrown at them, Mm -hmm. to be willing to have the self-discipline to wait? Just the trust in adults. I think that what was really at the root of this was that some of those children were, had grown up in environments by the time they were five, six, seven years old and in kindergarten and first grade when they were doing this, that they had the ability that was granted to them by optimized neurodevelopment mm-hmm. and that they saw these things, they, they were just more mature. They were capable of doing it. If you did this in a fifth grade class, you know, the fifth grade would understand. But to do this in a kindergarten class was really at the cusp of where that, where that neurodevelopment really was either done, pro, you know, was going well, or it wasn't, or not as well. And so I think that we can take back one step further and say, yes, both the ability to defer gratification as well as all of those other things are caused by, or the root cause is proper neurodevelopment. And I think that to the extent that we can optimize neurodevelopment for people through exercise, activity, um, social interactions, proper diet, and to the extent that we want to augment it with some you know, additional vagus nerve stimulation, I think the opportunity is there to really make make great children, make a, a next generation that's better than ours.
1: I love it. And I think no, no better point to kind of wrap up our discussion today. It's been enlightening for me, even though we've probably had this conversation or a, a variation of it many times so far. Um, but this is very, very clear that that there's uh, a real hope and a real possibility that we have found a tool in vagus nerve stimulation and neuromodulation in optimizing the function of the vagus nerve to manage the inflammation levels and to actually create a better future for us all, regardless of our age, our gender, regardless of of where we're at and what what's going on. We we're capable of doing more and and being intelligent, wonderful beings as long as possible through this really awesome pathway that has recently been discovered.
0: Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. It was a a wonderful talk. I love this topic. Looking forward to tackling other aspects of it as we go forward.
1: Yeah, we're going to dig into this one a little bit more as we go through more of these episodes this year. And again, if you'd like this, please share it. Please send it to somebody who you think would benefit if there's a parent that needs to hear it for supporting their, their child. If there is somebody that is a practitioner that wants to share this with a patient, please send this out and, and let them hear it because there's some really important information here. And once you understand the importance of supporting the immune system, supporting the vagus nerve and supporting all of that in the way that it supports brain development, brain function and optimal intelligence and, and brain function. You can really create a positive change in somebody's life. So please share with whoever you feel you need to share with. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Thanks for listening and uh, we'll catch you on the next one.